Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking again about the Kingdom of God, and we are looking at the minor prophet Amos, and we have gone through chapters 1 through 5, and uh, we're also now going into 6, but I'm, I'm going to take a quick review of 5, because I add a little bit more a few more links to five, uh, chapter five, so that you can, you know, just making it convenient for you to examine some of these words that we see in the text of Amos, because he uses words in order to express meanings and ideas, and uh, the and the words are symbolic because of the fact that. Amos is this poet. He's he's writing in a much different style than some of the authors of the Bible because he is writing almost poetry in the Hebrew language uh, using these words, which are commonly, like we said many times, almost all the words in the Hebrew language have both an abstract meaning and an actual physical meaning. And this is because the Hebrew language is is somewhat pictorial in the sense that uh, Chinese and Japanese languages are pictorial. They, you know, if you're going to write the word mountain, you would draw a mountain. If you're going to write the word house or barn or structure, you would draw a house. And then that would become an economy of lines. And so then, you know, the basic structure of a building would be a very basic picture. And then if it was a temple, you would add a few more lines to show that it's not just a house, but it's a temple uh, or a barn or what have you. And so, but they have this idea of objects becoming meanings and representing such as we see in the word tabernacle. Which, if I say tabernacle, you're thinking of the Hebrew tabernacle, or maybe a, a modern church tabernacle. But the same word for tabernacle is the same word for tent. And but in Hebrew, they don't draw a picture; they they use an alphabet, and that alphabet is basically also pictures of ideas, and then they combine those ideas and they come up with another idea by combining those letters. So if you were reading Greek and you see four or five different letters in a word, those letters probably have nothing to do with the meaning of the word. It has been so long since they've used that kind of concept of ideograms that the letters stand alone. The letters represent sounds because you're looking at a language that was spoken and then they wrote down an alphabet to identify the sounds of the word rather than the meaning of the word. Hebrew, the letters had a meaning and they put the letters together to create the meaning of the word. 
So that that process of creating an idea with accumulating other ideas creates a patterns uh, or, or many patterns in your brain where it uh, it facilitates the process of reasoning because these ideas are connected just to create the word and then you create a sentence by putting a number of words together and you create a thought which we call a sentence and then you put a number of sentences together and you create an idea or an expression of an idea. I uh, was looking at a uh, John Stossel video this morning and uh, the John Stossel video uh, was talking about Ian Rand. And at the end of the video, one of the people that he was interviewing uh made a statement about how and why Ian Rand's book had such great influence and still has an amazing amount of influence. And she stated, uh, fiction was more powerful than facts. And that's not actually true. I understand what she's trying to say, and that's one of the important things when you're trying to communicate these complex ideas you know, accumulating words and making sentences and that, you know, she came up with the sentence that fiction is more powerful than facts. It isn't fiction that is more powerful than facts. It is the story. The story is more powerful than facts because the story puts facts together whether they're fictitious facts or whatever, that it's telling a story. It's like a parable. is a story. It's putting ideas together in a story form. And you, you will read that story form with a different part of your brain than simply mathematical facts and information. It is already putting ideas together in a process of what we call reasoning. And so... When she tells the story, it may be a fictitious story, but the people become real in the story. And then putting those stories together, you're seeing ideas from a different point of view. I was just talking to somebody the other day and saying that uh, I have a difficulty remembering names. I am literally incapacitated in trying to remember people's names. But I remember stories, and that's what I will sometimes do is put a story to somebody's name and it will help me remember their name because I, the s- stories are people and people are stories. That's what stories are about. He, and one of the things that they do sometimes, Aesop did this and a lot of other people have done this in, in telling stories is they they personify animals in a story. Because animals don't really talk. Foxes don't talk. Chickens don't talk like they do in the stories of Aesop's. And uh, we even have a story in the Bible of a donkey talking. Uh, what they're doing is removing the personification from humanity of a particular idea about humanity so that humans are more willing to look at it. If it's a story about, you know, 
Peter Rabbit and animals and uh, and Eeyore and uh, or Animal Farm. That would be a good example. Then we don't feel so attacked when we're hearing them talking about pigs or talking about sheep. You know, we have this analogy that sheep are, you know, easily moved and herded about and and they just go in a mass and they don't do a lot of thinking. And so by personifying these ideas in the form of animals, it takes us one step away from us identifying and we can share the story and it can kind of sit in our subconscious until we are ready to see the truth about ourselves. And that's what fiction is about and that's what parables are about. So we tell these stories uh, so that we will understand concepts that are literally often universal in creation. They're, they're built in. These ideas are built into our existence. And we have terms like reason. And what it is is this natural flow of patterns in creation that... Uh, we call them reasonable because they they automatically, if this happens, this happens. If you do this, this will occur. And this is, you know, we can look at ideas and reason something out. That if we go down this road, this will lead to that. And uh, that's built into stories. It's built into nature. And it's built in there by nature's God. So, fiction is not necessarily more powerful than fact. Stories are more powerful than individual facts. It's like a, you can make a bridge out of stones. And you see these arched bridges, sometimes they're very small, but they can actually be big. And they have a keystone up at the top of this arch of stones. And it's the weight of the stones that gives power and structure to the bridge. But the stones by themselves are just facts. They're not arranged in a reasonable fashion. You know, there's a, there's a deal where you can take letters and jumble them up. Take letters that are in a sentence or in a word and jumble them up. The first letter will be the, the actual letter of the word, the first letter of the word, and the last letter will be the actual letter of the word. But all the letters in between are jumbled up. And people can go along and actually read the sentence written in such a manner that their brains will unjumble the letters between the first letter and the second letter. It's like a puzzle. And then we, you will, you will actually recognize the word that should be there. When you're doing crosswords, that's what they do. They want to get the first letter and the last letter, and then the other letters may be more readily coming to mind. But you, you need to know what those letters are in order to actually read it. And I've done this, and, and many people have done this, and some people are better at it than others, where you read the sentence, and it's only the first and last letter of each word in the sentence, that is actually in the right place. All the others are jumbled up. And that is that's supposedly a sign that you can reason. That you can put ideas together and make bring order out of chaos. 
And so this is this is a problem and, and discussing something, and we will look at it in the, the afternoon show, uh, discussing with somebody about the idea of Christianity. How, if you jumble them up with your own preconceived notions, you will not get the you will not figure out the answer. You will not figure out the truth. And we'll talk a little bit about somebody named Celsus. Who, who wrote uh, his works which are called the true discourse or true reason or true word word and uh, it actually has a couple other names it's all dependent upon the translation and so much can get lost in translation but he was very highly uh, critical of Christianity and uh, he wrote a whole dissertation on his uh, the, this polemic uh, presentation of why Christianity was bad and he he wrote it uh, around the time of uh, uh, some of the earlier Christian writers like Justin the Martyr and Justin the Martyr had written Antonius Pius who was the predecessor to Marcus Aurelius and uh, Celsus was a Platonist Uh, he advocated Plato's philosophy uh, writing during Marcus Aurelius. So Celsus was just a little bit after Justin the Martyr. Well, why was Justin the Martyr, uh, Justin, this apologist, writing to Antonius Pius, the emperor of Rome, at all? And what was he telling them? Well, he was telling them how Christianity worked. And Celsus, writing during, during the time of Marcus Aurelius, was telling you why Christianity was a bad thing. Why we should oppose it. And uh, understanding their perception of the reality of Christianity will help you understand either Christianity today or how Christianity, modern Christianity, has actually strayed from Christ. You know, the main argument against Christianity, according to Selson, was the loss of revenue for the temples. But if you don't know what the temples are, uh, you will, and what was going on in the temples, you will not understand Christianity and the opposition, the, the conflict between Christianity and those temples that were constructed in Rome, like the uh, Temple of Mineta, the Temple of Saturn. What were they doing in those temples? Why were the foods offered by some of these temples referred to as, you know, eating, if you ate of that food, you were eating of things sacrificed to idols. Why was that a problem in 1 Corinthians chapter 8? If you don't know what was going on in those temples and where the conflict between Christianity and the religion of those temples you won't understand the Bible. If you don't understand what religion meant at that time, you won't understand the Bible. If if you think religion is what you think about God, you're probably going to miss the, what the message of the gospel really is. Because, why is that? Because you don't have all the the letters between the first letter and the last letter. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. But if you don't 
understand the pieces in between that first and last letter, you will not understand the gospel of the kingdom. So, anyway, uh, Celsus preferred this welfare by the state uh, that kept the mob uh, at bay and consolidated the power of the regimes of the Roman government. And and that's what, what his main criticism was, was that this welfare by the state, which was run through the temples, bound the people together to make them a viable force for the leaders, for the what would later be called, uh, or at least it wasn't later from that point of view, but uh, in early Christianity, when they were trying certain saints, what we call saints in in North Africa, they were complaining that the uh, Christians did not swear by the genius of the emperor. Well, what do they mean by that? If you don't understand what the genius of the emperor was and why, where the conflict was, and we have some of the... Uh, documentation of those early trials, if you don't understand that conflict, you will not understand Christianity. If we go back to Amos, Amos is telling us where we went wrong or where the the Israelites in the kingdom, there were two kingdoms at that time, were going wrong. And what would be the cause and effect of that going wrong? Christ came back and told us many of the exact same things that Moses told us. He said we were to love one another. And uh, the Pharisees found fault with Jesus. Yet Jesus is quoting Moses. But the Pharisees had it wrong. They had gotten the letters jumbled up. They gotten the truth jumbled up. They were in sitting in darkness because they did not see certain elements of the kingdom and replace those elements with the elements of the world. This was the problem at the time of Ambrose. This was the problem at the time of Christ. And this was the problem during many of the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel, is that people did not want to see some of those elements of the kingdom of God, they turned their back on them. They would not look at them. And so therefore we see the metaphor that they sat in darkness. Christ came and awakened people, showed people what they were missing. The problem today is even though they read the Bible, they are still missing those elements in modern Christianity. Those elements that need to be there for us to bridge the gap between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. If we're miss, if you take out one of those stones in the archway of the bridge, the whole bridge collapses. It's no longer a bridge. It falls apart. And one of those key stones is the difference, the difference between what they were doing in the temples of Rome and what they were doing in the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
This goes on on an individual basis, but also on a collective basis. But in the kingdom of God, the prophecy is is that we would return every man to his family, which is the unit of the kingdom, and every man to his possessions. Because without his possessions, he loses the power of choice. And as I, I often quote Archibald McLeish, who said, freedom is the right to choose. The right to create for oneself the alternative of choice. Without the possibility of choice and the exercise of that choice, a man is not a man, but a member, an instrument, a thing. And that's what's happened is that modern Christianity has taken out a certain element of choice because they have made covenants with men who make those choices for them. And this is what, of course, Celsus had done. And Celsus was comfortable with that. But Christ said, no, that power of choice has to go back to the people. And the Greek word we see that probably closest is defined as the power of choice. That's actually what you see, the power to choose in the definition, the the basic definition of the word, is exousia, which is what we see in Romans 13. And Paul says we should remain subject to that higher right to choose. Because that right to choose is of God. From the beginning, God gave us the right to choose. Choose could choose to eat of the tree of life or the tree of your personal knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of one, it leads to life. If you eat of the other, it leads to death. And so that power of choice is repeated over and over again throughout the Bible and Christ is not taking away that power of choice. But in that power of choice, there's really only one choice we have to make. We have a choice between the tree of knowledge or the tree of life. We have the choice between listening to the Holy Spirit or shutting the Holy Spirit out and deciding for ourselves what is good and evil. If we decide for ourselves what is good and evil, it is inevitable that a tyrant will eventually get the right to decide for us what is good and evil. And of course... That's that's a fundamental story from the beginning to the end of the Bible. And it is one of those stones that allows us to bridge the gap between life and death, between heaven and hell, between eternal life and eternal damnation. And so Amos is talking about that. And we're going to look at that. And we're going to look at it in real uh, close detail in the afternoon show uh, in relationship to the story of mankind and the story of our times. But right now we're going to go back to Amos and look at what we did not cover in the original um, examination of chapter 5. And uh, and there are several words that came up, and we're going to look at some of those words. Uh, Bethel and uh, uh, Gilgal. And uh, Sheba or Beersheba, and find out what they really meant at that time in Amos. But we'll be right back to Keys to the Kingdom. 
So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So as we, you know, we've already gone through uh, chapter 5, but it says, But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal. Well, why would he be saying, seek not Bethel? Bethel is the word for house of God. And then he says, enter not into Gilgal. Uh, so what does Gilgal mean? Uh, it actually, it literally, it means a wheel or something rolling or something turning. You know, it's, uh, uh, it was also considered a dwelling place of the prophets and, uh, uh, almost a reference to heaven itself. And there are different variations of the word and like they add letters and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, uh, it's basically Gimel Lamad Lamad is the is the one way that it is is written, but uh, its its meaning is uh, also that it has to do with commitment. It has to do it can it can be it was used later in time as illicit worship. So. When they're talking about not seeking the house of God, it isn't that they're not seeking the house of God, but they're seeking, not seeking that what should be the house of God, but has become a den of thieves. And of course, if we understand that worshiping was how you provided service through the house of God. Now, of course, the house of God is not a building. The house of God is the people of God who have dedicated themselves to the household of God. You know, Jesus had a lot of parables about, you know, sons, which the prodigal sons and sons who where he had two sons and one says he's going to do the will of the Father, but doesn't. The other one who says he's not going to do the will of the Father, but then ends up repenting and doing the will of the Father. And he asks, which one is the true son? It's not the one who saith, Lord, Lord. It's the one who doeth. Christ had lots of statements and parables that expressed, if you're not doing what God said, you may become a worker of iniquity. And he will cast you out. And that, of course, is what was happening at that time in the kingdom of both kingdoms, of Israel and Judah, is that they were perverting the way of righteousness and beginning to practice covetous practices that set them rolling down a road in the wrong direction. Not towards the house of God, but towards a den of thieves, a den of covetous thieves. So then there was this other word, Beersheba, that we see mentioned in the text. And what does that mean? They, it's the well of the sevenfold oath. That is what Beersheba supposedly literally means. The well of the sevenfold oath. Well, Jesus said, stop the taking of oaths. James said, above all else, stop the taking of oaths. Uh, you know, Jesus saying, swear not. Because anything more than yes for yes and no for no cometh of evil. Well, this is how they set up these systems where the temple becomes a den of thieves. Is they get you to give a pledge. 
that you guarantee it, you turn free will offerings, which they mention over and over again into the in, in the Old Testament, you turn it into a forced offering where you have to pay in. What What is taking place when you make such an agreement where you give somebody else the authority to force an offering? You, you not only should give 10% or 20% into the temple, but now you have to give 10 or 20%. What is really taking place there? You have taken the choice away from the individual. It's not a free will offering anymore. It's an offering. It's still going to be called an offering. A sacrifice. But it's not a free will sacrifice. And if you go to Samuel 8, uh, you'll see that this is the, the foolishness of Saul is that he forced an offering. The Corban of the Pharisees, that literally translates to the offerings of the Pharisees, were making the word of God to none effect. Why? Because they weren't based on free will choice anymore. They were forced offerings. You read our article on Herod, read our article on John the Baptist, you will know this. This is what was taking place in both uh, Judah and in the, the kingdom of Israel is that the way in which they took care of their needy through the temple of God was now becoming forced offerings rather than free will offerings. They were taking away that choice. They were making the individual a member, a person, a thing, a human resource. And so we we included in... You know, I talked about it, made slight reference to it in the original recording on, on Amos 5. But uh, now I went and put into the footnotes. So you don't have to go to all the trouble looking it up. You can actually look up. And I've added extra links in the definition so you can go see where these other words are. But if we look at verse 18, Woe to you because you hear not the Lord nor do what he says to do. You run from the lion into the mouth of a bear. You're afraid of one thing and run into a greater danger, a bigger, more powerful danger. So the people will cry out to God, and this is also covered in Samuel, but he will not hear them. Why? Because they did not make a practice of hearing the cries of their neighbor. What they made a practice was coveting their neighbor's goods through the power of authority that they gave to their temples, to their ministers of their temples, to the priests of their temples, to the clergy of their temples. And what we will explore in the in the afternoon show, and we're going to take a little glimpse of uh, here, is that uh, there's a there's a certain movement and the, the conversation that began about elders. Elders is not an office of the church. An elder was an office of the family. The elder of a family, the oldest of the family, was usually the head of the family. Sometimes you could have the oldest uh, physical person in the family. Not really capable of being the elder of the family because of mental issues or what have you. But basically, an elder was the head of a family. That was the definition in the Old Testament. That was the definition in the New Testament. That was the definition in the world. That's what it meant. 
when they said they appointed elders, they were saying they appointed people who were elders to do certain jobs in for the church and for the society of Christians. They weren't appointing men to be elders. They were already elders and they were appointing them to oversee or to look or to deal with certain services that we see uh, listed in the Bible as daily ministration, the distribution of bread from house to house, the distribution of bread from Corinth to Galatia or Galatia to Syria or Syria to Ephesus or to Jerusalem. Wherever there was a need, somebody was redistributing the free will offerings of Christians because Augustus Caesar and even before Augustus Caesar the government of Rome was moving from free will offerings to take care of the needy of society to forced offerings and they did this by getting the people to pledge a portion of their labor just like in the days of Egypt they pledged a portion of their labor to go to these men who exercise authority those men who exercise authority and provide the welfare through the temples of Rome, were the clergy of the people. They were the clerks of the people. They were the ministers or administers of the system of welfare for the people. Celsus liked that system when it was done by force. Because Celsus did not understand that the covetous practices of such systems of socialism would make you a human resource, would turn you into merchandise, and would eventually curse your children. They would be in bondage for hundreds of years because of those choices. That was the bondage of Egypt. Israel made the choice of throwing their brother into bondage, and they themselves went into bondage. For 400 years, their offspring were in bondage. In Egypt, where their labor was not entirely their labor, a portion of it had to go to the government, to Pharaoh. That was the bondage of Egypt. And God said we were never to return there. And if we would actually follow the ways of Christ and the ways of Moses, we would not return to such bondage. The Pharisees did. Not only for themselves, but eventually they turned that bondage into a bondage of Rome. Now they would rebel against that and it would bring destruction. But the answer is not rebelling against the systems of the world, but is conforming to Christ. Now, how does this translate into our modern times? Well, maybe we should put another stone in our path so that we can get across this river and eventually turn that those stones into a bridge that arches from one side, the side of death and destruction, to the side of life. Because all the remedies that you see being offered out there in the political realm, in the political systems of the world, in the news, whether Fox or CNN, are not giving you the answer. They are not giving you the solution. They are not showing you the path. As a matter of fact, this is why conservatives cannot seem to stop all the crazy things going on that seem to be coming from the liberal side or the uh, the left side of politics today. Because the right side of politics is actually on the left side with the left. They're just not quite so far to the left. But that weakens them. And of course that's what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah in the time 
you know, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was in a time of affluence. They did not strengthen the poor. They actually weakened the poor. And so the systems that we have chosen for ourselves for the last hundred years are weakening us and we need to repent of them and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness or we will not be free again. And we, even if we were free again, we would not survive that freedom. So anyway, one of those little stones that I said we would put in here is Alexis uh, de Tocqueville, uh, who wrote uh, Memory on Pauperism, or Memoir on Pauperism. And he wrote it in French, so there's a number, number of different translations, and I, I put some quotes in the side notes on uh, chapter 5. Because he, uh, Alexis, attacks the British system of legal charity on a permanent basis as a method of impoverishment that not only increased the uh, indigent population, but their laziness along with their needs and their idleness. So what is legal charity? You know, is it the antithesis of illegal charity? <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's the antithesis of righteousness. Because legal charity is charity you're forced to pay into. It is those forced sacrifices that Samuel says to Saul were so foolish that his whole kingdom would fall. Because Saul was using legal charity to support his army. He was forcing the offerings of the people to support a good cause, his military. But, and eventually, this opened the doorway to legal charity to support the poor of society. Which weakens the poor, weakens society, weakens the community, and strengthens despotism. Polybius wrote about this. Uh, Juvenal wrote about it, Plutarch wrote about it, but you're not going to study those in your modern schools. You haven't been studying those people in your modern schools. They've just been removed from your modern, modern schools so that you don't understand these ideas, these covetous practices that turn your temples into a den of thieves and uh, poison of society. And that's what's happened. So there's a lot of people that are opposing, uh, you know, the organized church. They call it organized religion. Religion is the pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. And what you do now is you have these systems of force to provide for the needy of your society, which is part of that duty to your fellow man. And to the point, this has become so extreme that you have college professors saying that if you want to get people off of welfare, you have to create a guaranteed income. And this will remove people off of the welfare rolls. That is the welfare rolls. Guaranteed income. <laughs> it, that, that this, what you're doing is you're putting everybody on welfare. And, of course, that's what they've been doing. we got corporations on welfare. Uh, that's what the, the whole COVID uh, pandemic thing put most all Americans on welfare. 
that you got a stimulus check. You're on welfare. You, you're now going to be weakened as a people because you, I mean, to the point where people actually are not going back to work because they can make more on unemployment than they can on employment. This is, this is the, you're seeing the absolute destruction of society through this process. And Alexis, back in the 1800s, who toured America and was talking about what made America great, which most of these people going to college have no idea what made America great. It's not the Constitution. It was the fact that we took care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. And unless we return to that, we will not return to freedom. But to do that, we have to return the right to choose to the people. But they're not returning the right to choose to the people. As a matter of fact, what you'll see coming up more and more in the news is they're taking away your choices. You know, under the guise of giving you choice. You know, right to choose is actually the right to lose your right to choose. To give up your right to choose. And, And, you know, equity is the opposite of equity. Uh, inclusion is the opposite of inclusion. And all this came about because FDR brought about a system of legal charity, the welfare state. And it didn't just start with FDR. It was just one of those big leaps across the river into damnation when we decided to set up systems of social security based on forced offerings. And, of course, in order to do that, they had to make, you know, you only had to pay 1.5% of your labor in, and then you were going to be guaranteed an income. You know, Social Security, if you became disabled or if you became old and you couldn't work, you were guaranteed by the government. But in order to get that guarantee, you had to waive a right to a portion of your labor. And you entered into Egypt again. Now, this is this should be... Absolutely clear to every Christian that when you sign up for things like Social Security number, which gives you eligibility and all these wonderful benefits, that you are are going against Christ. Christ said it was not to be that way with us. We were not to pray for our daily bread from men who exercise authority one over the other. So the, the modern churches that are saying, oh, we don't need, I mean, there, I shouldn't say modern churches, the, uh, like home church movement, who are saying we don't need a clergy. They have a clergy. It's called the government workers. I was just talking to somebody who works in, in government, uh, locally, and they are trying to move the systems of mental health from the control of the government into private hands. Now, that's a noble idea, but can we find noble people to do that? And that, of course, is what Christ was doing. He was trying to move the system of social welfare that Herod had moved to the temple and forced offering system under the Pharisees. Rome had already done it with Augustus Caesar and with some of the proconsuls before. It just, it's a gradual thing. And uh, to go back, it 
we can make gradual steps to go back, but eventually things will collapse where if you don't have these things in place, it will be absolute utter destruction. And of course, that's what, when they were in the bondage of Egypt, that's why we got that, that period of time where God hardened the heart of the Pharaoh, did not let the people leave Egypt and brought plagues. It wasn't to punish the Pharaoh. It was to give opportunity to the people to learn to take care of one another without the straw of the Pharaoh, without the leeks and onions of the Pharaoh, without the unrighteous rewards of Pharaoh, the benefits of governments that exercise authority one over the other. And Christ was saying that to his apostles, that you are not to be like those governments. So anyway, you can read those articles on legal charity. You can do that at our page at preparingyou.com where we talk about Amos 5 and go through that chapter of Amos 5. But now in Amos 6, it begins with the words again, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Well, it's at ease in what Zion should have been. And trust in the mountains of Samaria. And we already talked about those mountains of Samaria not being what they needed to be, which are named chief of the nation to whom the house of Israel came. Pass ye unto Kalna and see, and from thence go ye to Hamath the great. So here are these words again, Kalna and Hamath. And I don't have footnotes there yet for those particular words, but those words have meaning. Those letters, uh, hey, mim, thoth, uh, they have meanings. And so he's, he's representing ideas. And if I explain them all intellectually to you at first, you know, uh, go down to Goth of the Philistines, uh, then this will become a intellectual journey. But it's not an intellectual journey. It's a spiritual journey. And you really can't even really begin that spiritual journey until you're willing to see the truth about yourself and your relationship with the gospel of the kingdom. And when you start to see that truth about that, then you can turn your actions into following the will of the Father. Not just be someone who says, I believe in Jesus, but you will actually be doing the will of the Father and, of course, according to the doctrines, the righteous doctrines of Jesus Christ. You will be taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity and less and less through force, fear, and fealty. Which is the way you do it if your priests, if your clergy are the men who exercise authority one over the other. The men who force the offerings of your neighbors so that you can have free stuff. Which is not free, but is actually costing you your soul. Costing you your salvation and leading you into destruction. And Amos was telling the people that then. And I'm telling the people now by reading Amos. So pass ye unto Kulna and see. And from thence go ye to Hamath. The great? What is he actually saying there? Hey, Mim, 
Tav, the flow of faith. Then go down to Goth of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms? Or their border greater than your border? You know, uh, Jesus said something very similar. When he, he, he talks about, you know, the, the good Samaritan. So the Samaritans were doing it better than the Jews. Because the Jews had, had gone from free will offerings to forced offerings. But the Samaritan was still, you know, helping the guy out in the ditch. And so this is what Amos is saying. Is that, go down to Gotha the Philistines and they're doing it better than these two kingdoms. So we're going to take a real close look at that when we return and see if we can get through Amos 6. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, like I said, I haven't put in the links yet to uh, tell you what Hamath and uh, Kelna mean, but both of them have reference to the idea of a fortress. But they are constructed a little bit different. They, they, they're representing that idea of a fortress from two different uh, elements, again, of what will provide you with safety. And they're, they're, uh, one is based on faith, <laughs> and the other is is based on what you do. Kelna has to do with what you do. That's why there's a Lamad and a Nun in the word. And uh, Hamath has to do with the flow of faith. And so anyway, this is what he's talking about. He's not talking about geographical locations. He's talking about ideas. That, uh, and concepts that the people were forgetting because they had removed certain elements of the gospel of the kingdom because they were hearing the gospel of the kingdom from Moses. They were hearing the gospel of the kingdom from Abraham. And some were following it and surviving and, and finding liberty under God. But if you make certain choices to turn your back on certain truths, which are all found in the Ten Commandments, which are all found in the Two Commandments of Christ, which all the Ten Commandments hinge upon, and all the statutes of Moses are trying to point to, then if if you remove some of those elements, the bridge collapses between us and God. And and then we we will not receive the Holy Spirit. We have cut ourselves off from the Holy Spirit. And when we have cut ourselves off from the Holy Spirit, we have to invent a new Holy Spirit, which is an unholy spirit. It's a spirit of emotion and a, a spirit of vanity and a spirit of ear tickling. So passing not into Kalma and see. And from thence go ye to Hamath, the great. And why the word the great there is, you have, well, I'll have to take a look at the letters. A lot of this, these Hebrew letters are written with no spaces between the words. And they're adding letters to these different words to give us different ideas. But, again, you're not going to figure this out intellectually. I make reference to it to help those people with their unbelief. That the message is there in code, so to speak, but 
we're not to get the message through our intellect. We are to get the message through our whole, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit listeth where it will. And where the Holy Spirit will listeth is where we do the will of the Father. Where we sacrifice our own will, our own selfishness for the Father. Well, the Father doesn't need our help. But our neighbor does. And we get close to the Father. That's what Corbin comes from a word that means to draw near. When we care about our neighbor as much as we care about ourselves. If we care about ourselves more than we care about our neighbor. And then we can take it back to Ian Rand. She was talking about, you know, she was presenting the heroes of her story as people who cared about themselves. They were in it for the profit. They were in it for the making of money. And they said, well, that's so selfish. You should be like us, socialists. We're not in it for making the money. If that were true, why are the Democratic Party members the richest people in the world? That that They are offering you equality while they want to be more equal than you. <laughs> that's why if, you know, there's just some story came out with Tucker Carlson talking about the laptop and how that story was oppressed and how there's evidence of crimes galore and nobody is charging them there is one set of justice for one side and another set of justice for the other nobody can talk about the integrity of elections uh, after Biden was supposedly elected in the United States but everybody talked about the election fraud and uh, interference in election when Trump was elected. Now social media doesn't allow you to even bring up the question. They pounded the question based on false documents. Now when we have real documents, we're not even allowed to mention them. If If you do not have justice in your heart for both sides... If you don't, if the truth is not available on both sides, it's not available anywhere. Uh, you, you take it away, and the the right cannot defend against the left because the right has not been honest. And what the right has not been honest about is the right believes that it is okay to covet your neighbor's goods if it's for a good cause. You know, support the military, free schools, social security, welfare, unemployment. The left wants to go more that way because they want to turn you into perfect savages so that they can be once more the monarch and the king. These processes have been repeated over and over again. You'll even find, you know, like I say, all these prophets are saying the same thing. And you can go to Zechariah and he talks about Hamath. Also shall border thereby. You know, and he mentions Tyrus and Zidon. All these are representative of ideas. That, And it's a jumble. But if you're willing to look at it and you see the first letter and the last letter, the Alpha and the Omega, then you can put all these letters in between together and start seeing the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. Which has not changed from the beginning because God is the same today as he was yesterday. You know, evidently we're the same today as we were yesterday. We are still sinners. And we're not seeing the truth of the gospel.
So then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Be they better than these kingdoms? Or their border greater than your border? Zechariah is talking about borders when he's talking about Hamath. What's these borders? It's your culture. It's the system. It's it's the parameters of how you take care of the needy of society. Rome began to do it through their temples, and the temples were supported by forced offerings. First, they forced them from the Gauls, but eventually they got once the, the the when Caesar was to return from his annihilation of the Gaul, Gaul est tres partia est. You know, Gaul is divided into three parts, which made conquering Gaul much easier, divide and conquer. And uh, he sold a million Gauls into slavery and became one of the wealthiest men in Europe because of the way they reorganized, they changed the borders of the way in which they constructed their their army before Caesar. And then Caesar got the opportunity of rising to this power. But they were going to try him for war crimes against the Gauls. Selling all these people into slavery, enticing them to battle, forcing them into positions where they would have to battle and then conquering and destroying them. Bribing them and dividing them so that their destruction was easier. Uh, all this, all this is going on today in the news. And, and and it's happening today. But they were going to try him for war crimes, but he bestowed so many gifts from these millions and millions that he got from selling all these slaves and, and stealing all their gold. And uh, that uh, they said, oh, well, maybe we won't prosecute him. You know, and everybody got their stimulus checks and nobody's cared about prosecuting other criminal activities that have come to life. They don't even want them to come to light. They don't want you to see them. They want to squelch the narrative. You know, there's two things that are common in cults, whether they're political or religious cults. And of course, we, we've got an article up on the Roman imperial cult. But there's two things that they get you to do. They control the narrative. They control your source of information. And you have two sources of information basically is the media, which includes social media, and one another. Sitting down and having conversations in the restaurants, etc. And talking one to another and hearing other opinions. They control that. They change that. What's the second thing that is common? You have to get the people to put something on, some exterior uh, symbol in their clothing, you know, wear a symbol, you know, a swastika or a certain kind of hat or a certain kind of, uh, you know, a burqa. All this is about getting you to wear something that identifies you to the rest of society. It's a testimony of the rest of society that you're going along. And, of course, that was the mask mandates. And even now when there isn't really hardly any flu and there wasn't hardly any to begin with, that, that was all fabricated by the media controlling the narrative. They got you to do that. And once you've done that, now there are people who've gotten the vaccination and think they're now safe. 
you know, although their safety is actually a great danger, they don't want to take off the mask because they might think they're a Trump supporter. <laughs> now, I'm not a supporter of Trump. I'm a supporter of the truth. I'm just trying to find the truth. And it's hidden there in the jumble of these rocks. You know, and a stonemason will look at the jumble of rocks and he will see a bridge. And other people will just see a jumble of rocks. They will not see it. But you have to see all the rocks. You have to see all the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So, anyway, he talks about borders, but then he goes on in verse 3, Ye that put far away the evil day and cause the seat of violence to come near. You're forcing the offerings of your neighbor to get your free schools, your free health care, your, your stimulus check. And not only your neighbor, but your your neighbor's children. You don't love your neighbor as much. You, you've gone out of practice. You don't even know what that means anymore. You cannot sit in a pew and sit, tell me you love your neighbor while you're coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. That lie upon the beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. That chant to the sound of the vials and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. That drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with chief ointments. But they are not grieved for the afflictions of Joseph, who was sold into bondage. The whole world has gone back into the bondage of Egypt. Australia is not just the communist countries, but the socialist countries. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, uh, they look at social democracy and they claim that like Sweden and Norway are social democracies. They're, they're not really. But there's still a huge element of coveting their neighbor's goods to the agency of government. They realize that, that it doesn't work and they, because they were one of the early practitioners of this new idea, supposedly new idea of social democracy, and it was destroying their country. They went from one of the wealthiest European countries to absolute a verge of total bankruptcy they rolled back many of those parameters but they're still not yet seeking the kingdom of god churches are dead there they don't need churches their clergy is down at the welfare office their clergy is down at the offices that uh, provide them with benefits to the point where they outlaw homeschooling they outlaw personal responsibility. In, and you have to, they, Sweden did get by without everybody being forced to wear masks, but there's still this element trying to force them back into that direction. And the media did not tell you about all the people being destroyed by the lockdowns. Because they were not grieved at the afflictions of those who were destroyed by these practices. You know, they've injured the health of people by everybody wearing masks and double masks. He goes on in verse 7, Therefore now shall they go captive with the first that go captive. 
and the banquet of them that stretch themselves shall be removed. There's going to be food shortages. There's going to be runaway inflation. You're all, all become captive because you did not care about your neighbor. You have false religion. You, you do not, you do not take care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity. You do it through legal charity, forced offerings. The Lord God hath sworn by himself, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the excellency of Jacob and the hate his palaces. We've talked about this before. What, what do they mean, Jacob? Jacob was stealing the birthright of his brother. This is, what else does God hate? He hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans that are conquered by their own greed. Therefore will I deliver up the city with all that is therein. In other words, the traveling merchants of the earth will have a full stock. They have it now. Including the souls of men. Verse 9. And it shall come to pass if there remain ten men in one house that they shall die. And a man's uncle shall take him up. And he that burneth him to bring out the bones out of the house and shall say unto him that is by the sides of the house, Is there yet any with thee? And ye shall say no. Then shall he say, Hold thy tongue, for we may not make mention of the name of the Lord. Censorship. For behold, the Lord commandeth that he will smite the great house with breaches and the little house with clefts. Shall horses run upon the rock and will one plow there with oxen? For ye have turned judgment into gall and the fruit of righteousness into hemlock. Because... You have been lovers of the rewards of unrighteousness. The benefits of men who exercise authority. Who take from your neighbor. You are willing to take a bite out of your neighbor so that you could have free school, free education, free health care. And no stimulus checks. Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught which say, have we not taken to us horns by our own strength? Horns? What did we say before about the horns of the altar? You rejoice in the things of naught? What is that? Is that rejoicing in the debt? Because your stimulus checks plunged your children into greater and greater debt. But you're happy because you got something that did not exist. You borrowed against the future. Verse 14, but behold, I will raise up against you a nation. Okay, those who've done this wrong way, gone this wrong way, there's going to be a nation raised up against them. Like the Israelites who were raised up against Pharaoh. They didn't attack Pharaoh. They didn't do war with Pharaoh. They stood with God, even willing to sacrifice everything to stand with 
God and the righteousness of God and take one care of one another without the benefits of men who exercise authority. And they found themselves on the shore of the Red Sea with the sea at their back and all the armies of the Pharaoh coming against them. But they stood with the Lord and the Lord delivered them. O house of Israel, saith the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall afflict you from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of the wilderness. So there's that Hamath again. But it's actually slightly different. They write it slightly different. Because <laughs> uh, the first Hamath is H-A-M-A-T-H in the English. The second Hamath is H-E-M-A-T-H. Why is that? If we go to the Hebrew, will we find different letters there in that particular verse? And what is the river of the wilderness? So, can we understand all these things? There's so much symbolism in there. And we, we've just passed through reading, you know, chapter 6. But I didn't tell you every single thing. Eat of the lamb out of the flock. They, they lie, they stretch themselves out on couches. All these people talking about equity and diversity and socialism and guaranteed incomes and everything, they are the richest people in the country. They have made millions and millions and millions of dollars being in political office with not very big salaries. They've all become millionaires. And you can go look it up on both sides of the aisle. Meanwhile, you're about to suffer runaway inflation, food shortages, uh, shortages of equipment and, and parts and materials so that you can't even run your businesses. And they, they, they defeated you overnight with stories because your mountains of Samaria are liars. They are not the men of truth. And it begins by accepting little lies. So over there on the right hand side, we'll look again at Alexis de Tocqueville. Because I have some more quotes, just like I put in the side notes at Amos uh, 5. And, and how he opposed this legal charity. He says, which allows the alms to persist but removes its morality. <laughs> you're still taking care of the poor and the needy, but you're not doing it morally because you're not doing it by free choice because you've taken away the free choice. You've turned your brothers into things. You've turned your neighbors into human resources by desiring legal charity, forced charity. By men who exercise authority. By the nimrods of the world. By the canes of the world. By the pharaohs and caesars of the world. By the FDRs and LBJs of the world. This is not new. There is no new deal. There is the deal of God and the deal of Satan. And Satan wants you to think that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods. It is not. It is time to repent. It is time to turn around. Alexis goes on to say, The law strips the man of wealth 
of a part of his surplus without consulting him. And he sees the poor man only as a greedy stranger invited by the legislature to share his wealth. The poor man, on the other hand, feels no gratitude for a benefit that no one can refuse him and that could not satisfy him in any case. This was written 150 years ago. Alexis saw this coming. He would roll over in his grave. But how many of you studied Alexis de Tocqueville when you went to school? People are worried about what they're teaching your children in critical race theory in public school today. You should be worried about what they taught your father's children yesterday. Because they did not teach them the truth for a hundred years in public schools. They removed the truth. They began, at least in 1908, they actually began, as soon as the truth is spoken, evil is looking at a way of censoring it. And you're willing to censor it because you're not willing to humbly look at the fact that you have gone the wrong way. You have not gone the way of righteousness. You've gone the way of covetousness. You have violated the Ten Commandments because you, and were willing to do so because you did not really love your neighbor as yourself. And now you hire ministers to tickle your ears and you cannot see the lies they tell you. They cannot see the lies they tell you. I just read a story this week of some pastor who got a thousand years in jail. He was sentenced to over a thousand years in jail. How do you get sentenced to a thousand years in jail? <laughs> you have to live a long time to get that kind of a sentence. Well, for what? Molesting boys. You know, this is a Protestant minister molesting young boys. And he has so many counts against him. He was doing all this for months, years. And all the people going to church were blind to it. They didn't see it. The same thing goes on in Catholicism. Not every priest is doing this. Not every Protestant minister is doing it. But if a Protestant minister or a Catholic minister or whatever you want to call them, Jehovah Witness, Mormon, whatever, are not telling you that coveting your neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority one over the other is going against the words and doctrines of Christ. If they're not telling you that, if they're not telling you to learn to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity and stop depending upon force, fear, and fealty to guarantee your welfare. If they're not telling you that, they are not the mountains of Samaria of God. They are liars. They are workers of iniquity. And they are ear ticklers that are getting you to go back into bondage, have already gone back into bondage, and are now going to reap the whirlwind that is coming. But we'll look more at this when we return to Keys to the Kingdom after this break. 
So, you know, I would encourage everybody to uh, not only take another look at the Bible, but go back and read some of these people that we quote. And uh, and sh- because the reason we quote them is not to give them authority, but to show you that these are not new ideas. They they say, may seem new to you, but they've been around for a long time. But you need to understand the meaning of words. And, you know, like I said, you can't understand the gospel or the temple of Christ, unless you understand the temples of the world. Even the word world. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of the world. And there's five different words in the, in the Greek that are translated, or can be translated world. And the one that he uses there, and, and who he's speaking to, is in the context of the message. He's speaking to Pontius Pilate, who wants to sit in the seat of judgment of Jesus. The Christ, the King, the Anointed of Judea and of Israel. The Messiah. All those words are the same thing. And Jesus says, my kingdom's not of your world. And he uses a word that means constitutional order or system of government. You you have no authority to try me. And Pilate agrees. There's no trial. They always talk about the trial of Jesus. Jesus said, you ain't got no jurisdiction. And what did Pontius Pilate do? He washed his hands of the case. What Pontius Pilate did not realize is that when he gave the power of choice to the Pharisees, as to, and he believed at the time that the Pharisees would release Jesus and crucify Barabbas, who had threatened their lives as a zealot. But they did not. They identified with their wealth and positions of power and money more than their life themselves. And they denounced the kingdom of God. And they crucified Christ. They said, we have no king but Caesar which sealed their own doom at the destruction of Jerusalem when they rebelled against the Caesar they had accepted. See, out of your mouth you condemn yourself. Christ said this over and over again. But you ought to know what you're talking about. You ought to find out what you're talking about and and how that operates in the world today. And so Alexis had a pretty good in- insight into it and so he talks about this legal charity and I'll read it again because it's worth hearing again legal charity allows the alms to persist but removes its morality forced offerings allows the alms to persist you take care of the needy but you remove morality because it's a covetous practice through men who exercise authority The law strips the man of wealth of a part of his surplus without consulting him, without choice. And he sees the poor man only as the greedy stranger invited by the legislature to share his wealth. This is is the culture of destruction. The poor man, on the other hand, feels no gratitude for the benefit that no one can refuse him. 
and that could not satisfy him in any case. And so he becomes a perfect savage as well. Both become savages, one not caring about his neighbor as much as he cares about himself because he's been removed from the process of caring and the choice of caring. He's become simply a human resource. But the poor man also becomes a savage so that he will actually burn down his own community. He will destroy his own community. Somebody was talking about the riots in South Africa that, you know, that they're just hungry and that's why they're rioting. Well, they're going to be a lot more hungry tomorrow because all the stores are destroyed <laughs> and the process that has brought them food has been slashed and burned. But this is inevitable if you institute legal charity. If you institute the rule of force and violence to obtain what you think you need. You must do it by free will offerings. By individual choice. You must grant individual choice even if you have to go hungry for a while in the process. Otherwise there is no gratitude. You have divided rich and poor. Instead of united your society. That is the culture of division. And that comes with this inclusiveness. Public alms guarantee life but do not make it happier or more comfortable than individual alms giving. Legal charity does not thereby eliminate wealth or poverty in society. One class still views the world with fear and loathing. While the other regards its misfortune with despair and envy. The victimhood of this inclusion, critical race theory, socialism, it's destroying you. It's destroying your society. You have to go back to legal charity. And the beautiful thing is, not legal charity, but righteous charity. You have to go back to fervent charity. Charity of the heart. And you can go to church and sing your songs. Amos was talking about that. They're singing. That isn't going to do it. That is not the song of Moses or the song of the Lamb. You have to go back to actually caring about. Start on a small basis. Everybody who has been listening and following and seeing the truth of what we are sharing with you should be gathering together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands like Christ commanded. Every minister should be trying to gather their people in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And they're not doing that if they're not meeting with other ministers doing the same thing. Because the gospel of the kingdom is to bring you together, not divide you. It will divide you from those who are lovers of the rewards of unrighteousness. Just as it will it divided the Israelites from the rulers of Egypt and there's a purpose for that division and God will become the fortress the Hamath the Basra these are all words that have to do with fortress your protection but you have to sit down in tens, hundreds and thousands with the purpose of serving others not being served but of serving others of sharing with others That's how you support this ministry. 
is that you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start doing what Christ said because this ministry is about Christ. It's not about me. One class still views the world with fear and loathing while the other regards its misfortune with despair and envy. Far from uniting these two rival nations, these rival peoples, this was originally written in French, so they translate this, who have existed since the beginning of the world and who are called the rich and the poor into a single people, it breaks the only link which could be established between them. It ranges each one under a banner tallies them, and bringing them face to face prepares them for combat. He also want, uh, uh, went on to, to state that any measure that establishes legal charity, any measure that establishes this forced charity um, on a permanent basis and, and gives it administrative form thereby creates an idle and lazy class living at the expense of the individuals and working class. That any measure is moving you towards destruction. And, of course, to deny that is to create a black spot in your own heart, in your own mind, where you're not going to see the stone that holds the bridge up. The bridging gap between the rich and the poor must be done by fervent charity. Otherwise, you are divided, and as divided, now you can be conquered. And you have, and that's what Nicolaitan means, the conquered people. And the deeds of the Nicolaitan, who may have their almsgiving, like Sodom had its almsgiving, it will not strengthen the poor. Nor will it bring the rich into satisfaction. We we need to repent of these practices. These in, in the administration form thereby creates this idle and lazy class living at the expense of the industrial and working class. This was the sin of Sodom. It is the covetous practices that Peter talks about that turns you into merchandise and curses your children. Individual charity is the powerful agency that must not be despised. And of course it is. And if you did a survey amongst conservatives which are still on the left side of the equation and the uh, liberals who are on the far side of the equation I hate these terms liberals these labels and everything because they've been so distorted you know it's like religion it's been distorted but the the ones who give the most charity We'll find, generally speaking, over on the conservative side, you get you get very little charity from the richest people in the world. You know, one of the secrets of uh, Rockefeller's success is that he tithed. He gave 
huge amounts to charity. Now his his, his sons and daughters uh, who have uh, inherited his uh, massive kingdom, they give to charity, but they give for alternative purposes, and that's why they're also going to be a part of that destruction and have been for quite some time. But the original gave lots of money to charity, real charities. It's because we live in a cause and effect universe. But anyway, Alexis goes on to say, and we only have a little bit of time to get through this, so he says, I sought the greatness and genius of America, as opposed to the genius of the emperor that was talked about in those early trials. You can go read about those early trials of Christians in North Africa at Preparing You. He says, I sought the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers. And it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests. And it was not there. I mean, there were all these resources down in South America as well. And that did not become quite the prosperous place that America became. In the boundless forest, it was not there. Her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. That's why we wrote the books, Contracts, Covenants, and the Constitution, to show you why it's not in your Constitution. That is not the secret of your success. It's not in your Congress. It's not in electing the right men to Congress. I mean, you can certainly try to do that if you want, but that's up to you. I'm telling you the real solution. Not until I went into the churches of America. That's the churches back then, not the churches today. That's over 150 years ago. The churches in America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness. Did I understand the secret of her genius and power? America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Alexis goes on to say, The love and respect of your neighbors must be gained by long series of small services, hidden deeds of goodness, a persistent habit of kindness, and as an an established reputation of selflessness. While despotism suspicious by its nature, by its very nature, views the separation of men as the best guarantee of its own permanence and usually does all it can to keep them in isolation. (laughs) The, the, The pandemic is just the extreme of that isolation. No defect of the human heart suits it better, the despot better, than egoism. A tyrant is relaxed enough to forgive his subjects for failing to love him, provided they do not love one another. There is the secret of your salvation. 
You have to love life. You have to love the ways of God. You have to love the character of God. But you also have to love one another. Like I say, God doesn't need your help. But he has given you your neighbor so that you can learn to hear the cries of others. Otherwise, he will not hear your cries. And you can, you can pledge your allegiance to flags and, and hang your constitution on the wall. But if you are not seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will not be free. And if by chance you become free, you will not survive freedom. So you can read the, the first verse. You know, we go through verse by verse, one through six, seven, eight, nine, twelve, in the, the, uh, where we have extra, um, references to horns of their own strength, which we made when we read through it. And, uh, I have other links to other articles that will start to show you how these stones of the bridge to the kingdom of God are put in place so that you can pass over those waters in the wilderness. Uh, and of course that's a symbolic again, just as the Israelites passed across the Red Sea. So we need to pass over these rivers in the wilderness to cross them. Israel had to wade across the river <laughs> to, uh, to get to the promised land. But these are again all symbolic of this basic idea that you need to love one another in order to find the trust of God in your heart and your mind, which will open your eyes and remove the scales and give you back, return every man to his family and every man to his possession so that you can exercise the free choice that God wants to bestow upon you in order to give you the power of growth in the world, but not of the world. Again, there's that word, world. Constitutional order and system of government. You should be in the world, but not of the world. If you're taking the benefits of the men who exercise authority in the world, you probably have already returned to the bondage of Egypt. You know, in the instructions, and we cover this in the book Covenants of the Gods, which is free online, if you, uh, not Covenants of the Gods, but Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions, which is free online, uh, that uh, the Constitution only had one out of five things listed in the Bible that you were to put in a Constitution. And because it only had one out of the five, and because of the leading of your own hearts, you have returned to the bondage of Egypt. Your society is divided, and now the whirlwind will come and destroy what is left of your society. You've all but destroyed the fortress of righteousness that would have protected you. But you can flee back into the way of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. You may have to reject the want, the house of wantonness uh, that desired benefits at the expense of others and the only way to do that is to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So, next week we'll look at Amos 7. This afternoon we'll 
we'll go through some of the uh, confusion of uh, the home church movement and some of the people in the home church movement. There's a wide variety of people in the home church movement. And, of course, you have to realize, you know, they're using the word church, which means the home called out movement. <laughs> no, the the congregation of the people should be in homes, mostly because it's the tens, hundreds, and thousands. So many of you are spread out. You may have to have your first gatherings by phone and occasionally by festivals, which we will have in the first weekend of September this year. Out here, we'll have the Burning Bush Festival. You can look that up and uh, find out more about that. But you need to form these congregations with the idea of helping one another. Now, it's really easy to help people that you see every week and that live down the street and, and you see their children and you have this human bond and relationship. But you need to start to think and care about others as much as you care about yourself without that compensation of emotional reward. You just have to start casting your bread upon the waters. And so the fact that you are all spread out and many of the congregations are not little groups that you can actually meet in the house on a weekly basis is a benefit in the process of seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. As more and more people begin to realize, and they will as things begin to decay and fall apart, realize that they've been going the wrong way and have the humility to admit they've been going the wrong way and they have believed a lie and that their churches are an apostasy and their pastors are not the pastors of the mountains of Samaria and they haven't been telling them the truth. Well, the more people will gather and and the sitting down in tens, hundreds, and thousands can become more localized. But the need will become greater and greater at that point as well. There is no way back to the kingdom of God and his righteousness without sacrifice. And people say, well, no, we don't have to sacrifice because Christ did it all. If Christ is really working in your heart, then you absolutely want to sacrifice. And I don't need to bring it up. But... That hasn't been where you've been going. So, yeah, I have to bring it up. So, hopefully, you'll turn around. So, in Amos 7, we'll be talking about the plagues. From the mowing of the king and his husbandmen, who weakened the people until the king was vulnerable as well, and the people went into captivity, because you're already into captivity, but there are many, many, many layers to captivity and some of them not so subtle and so you think you've been locked down for the last couple of months or years and now they're opening it up and now you won't be locked down anymore think again because they're not done yet you know how I know they're not done yet because you're still alive and that's the goal to put an end to humanity to decimate the human population. So, time to repent, folks. Time to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Time to go another way. And that way is the way of Christ. And that way is a way in which the poor and the rich are not divided. They are together. Seeking a government of righteousness. A government of liberty.
a government of freedom. Freedom not just to do what you want, but to free to do what you should do. There's a lot of calls coming in. <laughs> you hear them in the background. Fortunately, other people have been getting them. So, um, anyway, uh, when we get into Amos 8, uh, we will see that Israel is ripe for this final doom. Because it has gone the way of sloth and injustice. We are also ripe for this final doom. But the beauty is, is that all we need to do is think differently, turn around, go the other way. And so join us on the network. Go to preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org and join the network, uh, which will be Different email groups in different areas of the country. If you don't, you don't have email, find somebody who does and get a, get a hold of us and they will put you in contact with the people closest to you and start building the kingdom in his righteousness. Till then, God bless. Peace on your house. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.